Scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 18. Uh, For those of you who don't have your Bible with you or prefer to use the Pew Bible, that will be the blue. Uh, Look in front of you, it will be on page 1002. Speaking this morning of suffering. And then the merciful help of our Father in heaven. Begin reading verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of God. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we commit this time to you now. We thank you uh, for your great promises in your word, that your word does not ever return void. Thank you that you promise to accompany it, uh, that when your word is proclaimed, your spirit works with your word to change hearts and lives and to present Jesus to your people. And he is the one that we need to see this morning. Uh, So we pray that you would come to us, that you would be with us, that you would be our teacher, and that all that we do would be pleasing to you this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, there was a great story a number of years ago in, uh, in the Atlantic Monthly written by a guy named David Hadju, I think I'm saying that right. And he tells the story of walking through Greenwich Village on this Tuesday evening in the middle of August, just walking through, and he ends up finding this little jazz club called the Village Vanguard. And, and he describes this place as like the classic hole-in-the-wall jazz club um, they don't take credit cards. They don't serve food. This is probably when you could still smoke in restaurants and things. So it's this kind of smoky, hole-in-the-wall jazz club. And so he sits down. He orders a drink. And this great music is playing. And he begins scanning the band. And he sees this guy playing the trumpet. And he says, gosh, that looks like an older version of Wenton Marsalis. This great trumpet player. And so he leans over to the guy next to him and he says, is that, is that Wynton Marsalis? And this guy says, uh, I don't think so. He's not going to be playing in a place like this. And so as the evening goes on, this guy who's a huge jazz fan himself 
ends up realizing that this actually is Wynton Marsalis playing in this little hole-in-the-wall jazz club on a Tuesday night in the middle of August. And he describes this song that he's playing, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. I had never heard it. I YouTubed it this week, which I'd recommend you doing too because you can hear him play this song. It's this beautifully sad 1930s, just kind of classic jazz piece. And so he's playing this song, and here's how he describes this performance. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs, at points nearly talking the words in notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax, Marsalis played the final phrase, the title statement in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And it's completely silent in this place. And then a cell phone goes off. And interrupts this moment, and he says, Marcellus's eyebrows raise like this. And, and it feels as though this entire performance, this whole thing has just kind of come unraveled with this. People giggle, start getting up. And he scrawls, he says, he, he writes these two words on a sheet of notepaper that he has with him. Magic ruined. Magic ruined. This unbelievable moment where everything is going as it should, and then it all just goes to pieces and falls apart. Why tell this story? Well, first of all, I'm sure some of you probably checked your cell phones, didn't you? Just to make sure that doesn't happen during this. I was kind of hoping that it might. That would have been nice. Um, I share this story, though, because I think this is a great picture of how life can be going so unbelievably well in certain moments. And you hit that stride every now and again, and when it feels like things could not be going better, and then the cell phone goes off, right? And things begin to unravel. Your job is good, you have this great group of friends, your kids are doing well, and then you get the results from that blood work. And the doctor says he needs you to come in and sit down with him. Or things are going incredibly well and then you start hearing rumors around your company that things aren't going so well and that downsizes and layoffs are coming. Or it could be something very personal where you just look up one day and things seem to be going so well with your job, but you realize that you are missing your kid's childhood because of the amount that you're working right now. Things move along, the story of your life continues along, And then something blindsides you. Maybe it's a phone call saying that you just lost a loved one suddenly. Your story is going along just fine, and then something gets knocked off kilter. And the story of your life that seemed to be going so well begins to unravel, and it looks like things are in shambles. The cell phone has gone off. What I want to do this morning is take another look at the Incarnation. This is, actually, uh, this is actually the 12th day of Christmas today in the church calendar. And so what I want to do this morning is deal with this question of why Jesus had to come in the flesh. Why did He have to come in the flesh? And what I want you to see is that this has everything to do with the story of your life that feels like it is in shambles and that it is unraveling right now. 
It has everything to do with that because the glory of Christmas is that the God of the Bible sees this brokenness. He sees the frustration, the sin, and the shame of your life, and He doesn't stand far off, distant, cold, unconcerned. But what He does, the author of this story, is He actually writes Himself into this story. He enters into it, and in the person of Jesus, takes on flesh and blood. The author is going to talk very specifically about that. He takes on flesh and blood, a full human nature, and enters into the brokenness of our lives and of this world. So what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus actually writes Himself into the story in order to redeem our story. You could say it another way. God restores your life by writing Himself into it. We've got three points here if you want to jot these down. First is this. Jesus writes Himself into the story to lead us out of shame and into glory. Secondly, He writes Himself into the story to set us free from death. And then finally we'll see that He writes Himself into the story to deal with our guilt. So first point. Jesus wrote Himself into the story to lead us out of shame and into glory. That rhymes. I'm sorry. Um, to understand this, though, I want to go back to the very beginning. Um, you see this in verses 10 through 13, and there's this talk of glory. But to understand this, we have to understand the beginning of the Bible and what humans were even created for. The truth of the Bible is that you yourself were created for glory. That humans were created in the image of a God who is glory, and we were created to reflect His glory in the world. We're created for this glorious relationship for Him so that every part of our lives would reflect His goodness and His glory. So our family life, our work life, our fun, our recreation, all of these things would be reflection of and enjoyment of and a basking in this glory of God. And Psalm 8, which is the uh, a psalm that the author of Hebrews reflects on a whole bunch in these, uh, in these verses, actually speaks of humanity as created and says this in verse 5, Yet you have made him little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You were created for glory. However, obviously that's not our constant experience now. There's a real problem because we don't experience this glory and honor. And probably the way to describe our actual experience is not one of glory and honor, but one of shame and dishonor. And that's actually exactly the way the Bible describes the effects of sin in the world. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that that, uh, God creates the man and the woman in Genesis 1, and we get an account of that, kind of an isocam on it in Genesis 2. And that chapter ends with saying that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. And then immediately in chapter 3, where they eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing they do is try to hide and cover themselves. Why? Because they felt for the first time this deep sense of shame. Now, I think for most of us, when we think about sin, we probably associate it with guilt. Um, guilt would be more of a violation of, of a law. And that that's sort of what we think of in terms of sin. 
But the way the Bible talks in these early chapters is more in terms of shame. Uh, Brene Brown, the sociologist, has written extensively on shame. She makes this distinction between guilt and shame. I think this is helpful. She says this, Guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. And whether you are a Christian here this morning or not, you recognize that experience. This is a part of the human condition now that we feel this sense of shame about us. Ed Welch has written a book on shame, and here's what he says, how how he defines it. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Now, we don't have time to get into all the causes of shame, but what I want you to see, even just from that definition, is that shame is not something that merely comes from what you have done personally. It can. You can be ashamed of something you've done. But it also results from something that's been done to you or somebody that you're associated with. Any sort of mistreatment that you experienced growing up. If you were abused in some way, verbal, physical, sexual, the sense of shame is almost overwhelming. Things that are not your fault, but things that you still feel guilty for. You feel dirty and you feel exposed. And what what I want want us to see is that this, this is the opposite of glory and honor. It's the opposite of the way in which we were created, opposite of the way in which God intended us to live in this world. And so the result is that we hide and we self-protect and we're afraid of relationships. This is what happens in our shame. The claim of this passage, though, in these early verses is that Jesus actually became a man in order to lead us out of that shame and into glory. And I think we see this in a couple ways. He says it first, or does it first, by becoming our pioneer. That's the word I'm going to use for verse 10. I realize that's a weird word. Um, and I was talking to Jeanette about this. We talked about how it sounds kind of like the Oregon Trail or something, the old computer game, or like Laura Ingalls Wilder, pioneer talk. But this is actually a good word that gets at what is said of Jesus in, in verse 10, where it says he's the founder. Um, th- there are two senses to this word of pioneer, at least. And it has the sense of Jesus being the founder of our salvation or the author or originator of our salvation. He's the one in whom our salvation is found. So it gets at that. But then it also gets at the sense of him being our leader. So some translate it as as a ruler. He's the ruler of our salvation or leader of it. And the picture that we should have here is of Jesus leading the way into salvation. He leads us in. He opens the way to salvation for us. But notice how salvation is described. It says, in bringing many sons to glory. Jesus' work is to bring us back into glory. He's the one, if you've got your Bible open, according to uh, chapter 2, verse 9, just before the passage that was read, He's the one who was crowned with glory and honor. And the author of Hebrews says early in the book, in chapter chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus Himself is the radiance of the glory of God. So He is the glorious One. Jesus is the perfect reflection of God's glory. 
And so what He's done in coming into the world is, to, is leading us out of our shame and into glory. To bring you out of that shame that you experience so palpably and into this glorious presence of God. And as He leads you into that place, He guarantees that you'll never be rejected. He leads you into that glory. But it says also in verse 11 that He has become our brother. He's become our brother. Look at verse 11. For He who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one origin. What He's getting at here is that it originates with God Himself. God is the Father of Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done for us, God is now our Father as well. And as God becomes our Father, Jesus then becomes our brother. And so that He can then say this in verse 11, that is why He's not ashamed to call them brothers. So here's the picture we should have of Jesus as brother here. He's not the kind of brother who's the older brother in high school who, though he can drive to school, still makes you ride the bus and then gets to school and ignores you in the hallway, right? Jesus is the kind of brother who is not ashamed of you, who includes you in the family, who loves you and invites you in. For some of you here, this might be one of the hardest things for you to hear and believe because of what you've been through. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of you. You might be ashamed of you. You might be ashamed of what you've done. You might be ashamed of what's been done to you. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He delights in you. He rejoices in you. He calls you His brother or His sister. He was the one who was shamed in order that you would not have to experience this ultimate shame. So the truth of this passage, this first reason that Jesus writes Himself into the story is to restore the glory that rightly belongs to humanity, but that has been marred with sin and shame. He leads us out of that so that now our story is one of glory and no longer one of shame. Your shame doesn't define you any longer if you've put your faith in Jesus. He leads you out of it into glory. So He's written Himself into the story to do that. Secondly, Jesus wrote Himself into the story to set us free from the fear of death. We see this in verses 14 through 16. If you glance back at verse 14, I want us to slow down just a second here because these couple of verses state one of the most incredible truths in the whole of the Bible. It's really, it's a crazy, almost absurd statement if we just try and and, uh, pan out a bit and put aside all that we have grown so accustomed to in the Bible. The claim here, according to verse 14 is that because the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, He Himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. What He's saying is that Jesus became flesh and blood, and He's using those words on purpose, because those are, those are real words. Those are gritty words that speak of Jesus as a human. He became a man 
because we ourselves are flesh and blood as well. I want you to think about this for just a moment. The claim here of Christianity is that the infinite God, the second person of the Trinity, who's existed for all eternity in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, has now entered into a finite human body. This is God in the flesh. This is a God who doesn't move through the world untouched and unaffected by the human frailty that we experience. This is one who knows it in every way. Here's how Spurgeon puts this in a beautiful, very Spurgeon-like way. Infinite and yet an infant. Eternal and yet born of a woman. Almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast. Supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. King of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph. Heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. Jesus became flesh and blood. But if you notice here that the, the point isn't just that he became a human. The point that the author's getting at here is why. And if you look at verse 14, you see a couple of reasons why. Jesus became flesh and blood in order that he could first destroy the one who has the power of death. Now, what he's not saying here is that the devil has some kind of ultimate power over life and death. That, that power and authority in the Bible is reserved for God alone. He's the one who is ultimately powerful and sovereign over life and death. But what he is saying is that the devil can use that fear of death, that he, he, he works in this realm of death in order to enslave us to it. To be enslaved to death is what happens here. And we get this. Death is, is one of the few things that we don't even have the semblance of control over, right? It is the one thing that is inevitable that you can't escape. And because of that, it brings great fear. Uh, Woody Allen says this on death. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And that, that's a pretty good, pretty good summary. Death is the ultimate picture of the way the world is not supposed to be. It's the ultimate consequence of sin in the world. And the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15 is that that is the last enemy to be defeated. The world is not right until death is no longer a part of it. So how do we typically deal with this fear of death? I think there are a couple ways that we, we try and cope with this on our own. The first is to fight it. And if you just look at your New Year's resolutions, you might see some evidence of this. We try to perfect ourselves in all the ways that we can. Better health, surgery, fighting for youth at all, uh, at all uh, turns. We do all we can to, to slow and even reverse the aging process if possible, just to cling to this hope that maybe we could live a bit longer, that maybe we could put off this inevitable death that's coming our way. So we fight it. The other way, though, that we try and deal with it is just to forget it. Where we entertain ourselves, we ignore it, we numb out, we kind of take the eat, drink, and be merry approach so that I really don't have to think about what is ultimately coming my way. And so we try to deal with this fear in these ways that, of course, ultimately don't work. No amount of New Year's resolutions, diets, self-protection, self-preservation, 
or entertainment, certainly, is going to keep this from happening. You can't dodge death. But what Jesus says in this passage is that you can be set free from the fear of it. And notice how he says this happens. He says he'll destroy the devil to deliver us from the slavery of the fear of death. But he does this, it says in verse 14, through death. He defeats death by dying. And this is where we could say, you can't really ever talk about Christmas without also talking about Good Friday. Because the express purpose of Jesus coming into the world and being born is that He would one day die. And this is one of those great mysteries and seeming paradoxes of Christianity in general, is that Jesus defeats death by giving Himself over to it. He renders it powerless by succumbing to it. He gives Himself to death. And just as you can't talk about Christmas without talking about Good Friday, you can't talk about Good Friday without talking about Easter. So the expectation here that Jesus enters into death and He disarms death because He comes out the other side. He conquers death because He's been raised from the dead. So why do you and I no longer have to fear death? We no longer have to fear death because Jesus experienced death for you if you've put your faith in Him. His death becomes your death. He suffers this death in the fullest sense so that we can actually be free from it. And so here's what this means. How does this actually take away fear? It doesn't mean that you won't actually physically die. If Jesus returns before, we we won't. But what it does mean is that even in death, you will not be separated from Jesus. It means that death will not have the final word for you, but life will. Death is not the final end if you've put your faith in Jesus. And as that happens, it disarms that fear in a way that nothing else can. He had to become like us in order to accomplish this. He experienced death so that we don't have to. So he writes himself into the story to overcome our shame, to set us free from death. Thirdly and finally, Jesus wrote himself into the story to deal with our guilt. Verses 17 and 18. How does he do this? It says he became our high priest. Now this section, the whole of the passage really, But this section in particular is just dripping with this Old Testament sacrificial language. And so there are so many things we could say about this. I want to try and keep it simple, though. What does it mean to be a high priest? Well, a high priest, a priest in general, would have been one who was ordained by God to offer up these sacrifices as an atonement, a payment for our sin. So there was still this distinction, though, between priests and and the high priest. Regular priests were those who would enter into what the author of Hebrews later calls just the holy place. They would enter in on a daily basis to perform the sacrifices that were necessary. The high priest, though, is one who on the Day of Atonement, one day every year, would enter into this what's called most holy place. He was the only one who could go in there. So he would enter into this most holy place and he'd offer sacrifice for his own sin because he was guilty as well and then also for the sins of the people. What's different about that with Jesus? A couple things. It says in this passage that Jesus was made like us in every way 
And the reason for that is that He must be like us in order to be our representative. So He's our high priest in that way and that He goes in as our representative. But one huge difference is that He has no need to offer up any sacrifices for His own sin because He was sinless. And the other huge difference is that He did not come in offering the sacrifice of doves, of goats, of animals. He came in to this most holy place and gave His very life. He was made man in order to give up His life as our high priest once and for all. Sacrifices ended at that point. There are two things that happen for us as as Jesus becomes our high priest. The first is that He makes propitiation for our sins. Verse 17, you see this. Okay, big theological word. What does propitiation mean? There are two parts to it. One is that it's the turning away of God's judgment. The turning away of God's judgment on sin. But the other part is that it's not just a turning away from the one who is being one for whom this propitiation is being made. It also is the full satisfaction of this judgment. The turning away and the full satisfaction. So here's what this means. It means that the judgment that you and I deserve has been turned away from you and exhausted on Jesus. He's the one who offers His very life and experiences the judgment due for your sin and for my sin. A couple implications of this. One is this. When you look to those things in your life that seem as though they're the cell phones, the things that are, that are causing your life to unravel, you cannot look to that and say, God is doing this because He is punishing me. That's not what's happening. You can't look at those difficult circumstances and say, this is punishment from God. Why? Because the punishment for your sin has been completely exhausted on Jesus. There is literally not an ounce of judgment for you if you've put your faith in Jesus. This is what He's done for us as our high priest. But it also means this. This means that God is not angry with you. you know, some of us walk around with this nagging sense that God is constantly upset with us. Because you think, how could He not be? All that I continue to do, all that I continue to struggle with, how could God not be upset with me making the same mistake again? With still struggling with the same ugly, ugly sin in my heart. How I continue to mess things up. Jesus, as your high priest, guarantees God's favor upon you and that will never change. It is once and for all, God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you. I think it's helpful even to glance back at verse 10 and see this. It says that, speaking of God the Father at first in verse 10, it says, for it was fitting... And most commentators understand that to mean that this fits with God's intention from the very start. This is His rescue mission. He desires to deal with the guilt of His people in order that He could be with them. So the judgment for your guilt was poured out on this high priest who was guiltless. So what do we do when that guilt arises? 
we look at the cross. We remind ourselves of who this high priest is. And we remember that this guilt is no longer ours. A second point and benefit of Jesus as our high priest is that he helps us when we're tempted. We'll, we'll finish with this in verse 18. This incredible statement, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's the point. Jesus was made like man. He was made a man. He took on this full human nature in order that He would know the experience of your suffering and of your temptation. It's really easy to view Jesus as one who didn't actually face temptation. Like, okay, yeah, He faced some things, but He wasn't really tempted. What this verse says is that He really was tempted. He really was tempted to turn away from this mission that God had sent Him on. And yet He didn't. And for that reason, He is able to help you and help me when we are tempted as well. As our high priest, He helps us when we're tempted. Okay, back to the village vanguard this uh, Tuesday night in August. This cell phone has gone off. The magic is ruined. This great moment that He was enjoying is just, it unravels and it's undone. So He says that the, the cell phone offender, as you can imagine, scoots off to the side, like gets out of there, rightly. And the chatter increases in this room. But Marcellus is still standing there at the microphone. And he takes his trumpet and he starts playing the notes of the cell phone ring. And he plays them again. And he starts improvising off of them and he changes keys a couple times in this little riff. And then he wraps it into, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And picks up right where he had left off. And the author says, rightly, the crowd just went crazy. He went crazy. This is what God does with your story. He takes what appears to be a life that is unraveling and even ruined, a life that is riddled with shame and a fear of death and guilt, a life that is full of failures and frustrations and things that you wish weren't so, and he writes himself into that story. And he takes what looks to be a life in shambles in the incarnation of Jesus and makes it something beautiful. This is why Jesus had to become a man. And this is why he did become a man. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this truth of the gospel, this incredible truth that you would send your son to take on flesh and a full nature to be given to temptation yet to remain without and to be our high priest. We thank You for this. We pray, Lord, that You would enable us to look to Him as a representative, as the One who is not ashamed of us, the One who is our brother, the One who has led the way into glory for us. We thank you for him, and we praise you for him, and we pray in and through his name. Amen.